Minister of Music, Ken Logan, takes uh, a month off every summer to go up to the beautiful climbs of British Columbia. And he spends that time outdoors just kind of musing and brooding and just wrote this, just wrote this three, four weeks ago. And so Josh and Megan singing those words, I am a pilgrim, I'm a stranger. We all are. But here we are from all over the world. Met a club from uh, Hong Kong, halfway around the world. So you're here, and we're delighted to have you in the seminary chapel, at the youth chapel as well. I want to pray with you and then plunge into our teaching today. Father, thank you for this, this fellowship. What a fellowship, what a joy divine. We're all pilgrims. We're exiles. We're strangers here. This, is, this, this was never to have been quite like this, but here we are. Give us hope. Give us courage. Give us joy today. In Jesus' name, amen. Because you see, I'm saying joy because I have great news for you this morning. In two weeks, the exiles are going home. Can I have an amen for that? In two weeks. That doesn't sound very good to me. In two weeks, the exiles are going home. Can I have an amen for that? Amen. Amen. You know what? It's hard to believe. This this beautiful Howard Performing Arts... uh, center has been our home for these weeks. But in our hearts, there's a little something that says, we got to get back. We got to get back. And I can hardly wait for you to see, because some of you had not been keeping up on it. Wait for you to see that home that's waiting for you. Although I have to tell you this, and by the way, we need to be sure and thank our president who will be here with us uh, next Sabbath, how grateful we are for Andrews University's kindness in providing the space at no charge. But I'm going to miss this place, to be honest with you, because of the communication that happens here. I call it kind of up close and personal. That's a euphemism for up close and in your face. And I just love being able to preach that way. And I'm going to miss that because there will be a few extra feet between us and that front row. But it's going to be beautiful. The time has come. And God has been good. You know what? It's it's time for the exiles to go home and speaking about the civilization. Look at this civilization. Can you believe what happened in the last seven days? What is it? Three, four, or five? They're not quite sure now. How do you define a mass killing in the the United States? But whatever it is, we've had them. Three, four, five of them in the last seven days. There's an old hymn, Lift Up the Trumpet and Loud Let It Ring. Remember that hymn? Nations are angry. By this we do know Jesus is coming again. You know what, folks? I believe Jesus is coming soon. Now, I know that there are people in in this uh, circle right now who are a little bit uncomfortable with that kind of, you know, I don't want to say that that Jesus is coming soon because I might set set somebody up for disappointment, get their hopes up. Do you know what? After all the bad news, it is high time we get our hopes up, up again. Jesus is coming again. And we have some very, very good news to tell to the world. That's why God invented exile, so that he could get the word out. We've come to our last exile today. You know what? We've read this story so many times. We had, we, we had no idea that this person is in exile, but he is. Put it on the screen, please. The last piece, Song of Exiles, going home, going home. I'm a going home. You say, how do you know he's in exile? Well, let me give you the, remind you the definition of an exile. What is an exile except someone who has been forcefully removed from his or her home and homeland, which is a perfect descriptor for the last exile in our series who happens to be the very first exile in all the Bible, the very first. We're talking about the young Joseph. Ever heard of Joseph? 
perfect illustration of someone who has been forced, forcefully removed from his home and homeland. Joseph. Everybody loves the story of Joseph. I've got to put that picture on the screen. I grew up with this picture of Joseph. This is a Harry Anderson photo. I went to my little Bible story books, and I took the picture this last week. There he is. I just love that picture. That is so filled with emotion for a kid who grew up in Japan and had to leave home at the age of 14 and never, never came home again. I can identify with this picture. He's 17 right there, and he's looking back. Oh, can you put the picture back, please? He's looking back at his father's tents and saying, I'm never going to see him again. I'm never going to see them again. That's an exile for you. Yep, that's an exile. Joseph. Well, we know the story of Joseph. In fact, we did a five-part series here once upon a time called Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. You remember that? You can go to our website, we'll flip it up a little later in, the, uh, in, in our time together, and you can just binge watch that. It's, an, it's, it's one of the greatest stories in human literature. We're going, we're talking about this, this is the Joseph who had the coat of many colors produced by his doting and aging father. Big mistake, Dad, to single out one of your boys and say, this is my favorite. You just don't want to do that. You don't want to do it as a parent. You don't want to do it ever as a teacher. You don't want to do it as a Pathfinder club leader. You don't single kids out and say, this is my favorite one. Now, he may be, she may be performing in a way that makes you happy. Just honor that quietly. That's all you have to do. Because it created, it created obviously, intense jealousy on the part of his stepbrothers. And they're the ones that took that boy and they saw some pagan slave traders riding by on the camels and they said, yeah, we got, a, we got a deal for you. How much will you give us? 30 pieces of silver? We'll take it. The story of Joseph is a story of Jesus writ large. The details are just stunning. The parallels between Joseph and Jesus. He is the Jesus of the Old Testament. He's taken. You saw the picture of Harry Anderson. He ends up on the slave block in Egypt. A general named Potiphar says, I'll take that boy. He looks strong and healthy. He'll come be my slave. He became his slave, and he soared to the top of slavehood in Potiphar's house. Yep. Unsuccessful Mrs. Potiphar was in trying to seduce that boy. He ends up thrown in a subterranean dungeon to rot. We'll never see you again. But what does he do there? He rises back up like a good pathfinder. He just rises back up to the top again. And somewhere along the way, it becomes clear that this boy can interpret dreams. And that mighty king named Pharaoh hears about the boy. And when the boy warns him, that ominous dream you've had is bad news for the world, Pharaoh says, we got nobody like this pathfinder. Let's take him. And they took the exile. And they elevated him, talking about a meteoric rise. Shh. Elevator to the top. Power, prestige, prominence. He had it all. But you know what? That's what God does with exiles. You remember Daniel? We've, already, we've been to Daniel already this summer. You remember Esther? We've been to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. How about Nehemiah? When God invents an exile, what God wants to do is move that exile into circles she, he would never be in otherwise. And sometimes it's to position the three Ps, position, power, and prominence. Makes me look at you and wonder, I wonder what God is going to do in your life. I wonder what, I wonder what dream Jesus has for you. You're just a young pathfinder, are you? You're an aged citizen, senior citizen, they call you. Are you kidding? Moses is 80 years old when the dream comes true. Don't you ever give up on God. He will never give up on you. You can't give up on him. You cannot. Well, we know the story of Joseph. He goes, takes that elevator to the top. He's become the prime minister of Egypt. And along the way, 
He gets to marry the daughter of the numero uno religious leader in the entire empire, the high priest's daughter. Oh, my, what a deal. Yep, that's the story of Joseph. And then that devastating, seven years of plenty, but then that, those ominous years of dry, dusty famine, and they show up. Joseph's stepbrothers, who betrayed him as dead to daddy, they show up, all of them, and they bow down at the feet of the keeper of the grain, who happens to be the prime minister, who happens to be their betrayed brother. Twice they come to Egypt. Joseph is testing them every single time. He's got to find out, has there been any change in these boys? And when he insists that they bring the youngest of the litter, Benjamin, you bring Benjamin, and I'll believe you, over the protest of daddy, Joseph realizes the men have changed. They're not the same brothers I once knew. And so we come to this, this precious, this just, this kind of, woo. The music is louder as the, as the scene cuts to Genesis chapter 45. This is the great heart of the story of Joseph. As I say, one of the great stories of all literature, certainly sacred literature. I want you to come to the moment when he discloses who, he's, who he is. All right, so Genesis chapter 45, please. Genesis 45, I'll put the NIV on the screen for you. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. That means all the Egyptians in the room. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. Watch this, verse 3. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But the brothers were not able to answer him because all they could do was... Nothing came out. I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, listen, listen, don't be distressed. And do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two, keep, keep reading. For two years now, there's been a famine in the land. And for the next five years, there's, got, there's not going to be any plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve, preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Man, that's exactly... Exile Joe, you could not have gotten that more clearly. That is, the, that is the precise purpose that God invents exiles. Put that line on the screen, please. Let's see it again. It was to save lives that God turned me into an exile, to preserve a remnant on earth. The very reason you and I are exiles right now, there is somebody on this planet that you are perfectly positioned to reach for the kingdom of heaven. Just like Joseph. Wow. So spoke the very first exile. So we must live the last exiles in the long anguished history of earth. Now, here's the question. Yeah, but did God really accomplish his mission for Joseph? Did he save people? Did he reach people for the kingdom of heaven? I got five fingers to prove it. Finger number one. These will be all Joseph's bosses. You think about them. First, there's Potiphar. These are people that Joseph reached for God. Potiphar, then the prison warden, and then the mighty Pharaoh himself. So that's, that's finger number one. Finger number two, Joseph's associates, all the people in Potiphar's house, all the people in the prison subterranean dungeon, all the courtiers in the king's court. Joseph reached, touched them all for God. How about uh, category number three, Joseph's wife, that pretty little girl that he married. She's the daughter, remember, of the high priest, the highest. 
So he not only influences her, but he influences her daddy. He influences her mommy. He influences the entire family tree. Finger number four, the citizens of the land of the empire of Egypt who now come to the keeper of the grain himself and please help us stop this famine. Don't let us starve. Oh my, is he having influence with the human race? And number five, come on, one more finger left. The dignitaries foreign from nations all around Egypt who are desperate to find food. They too come to Joseph. Do you understand that when God gets a hold of an exile who's willing to be gotten a hold of, as you are, he can move you anywhere on earth. You have no idea where you're going to end up. And remember, your age doesn't matter. He'll move you when he needs you. Oh, my. Wow. No wonder God invented exiles. All for the sake of them sharing their contagious faith with those who do not yet believe. Sounds a lot like your mission and mine, doesn't it? So I'm doing some reading over the summer. I'm studying on, up on Generation Z. And by the way, we just got infused with a lot of Generation Z, and it's not even school time yet, because Gen- Generation Z is anybody born between 1996 and 2005. So that's the, that's the dominant group of our mission field here at Andrews University for every, every professor and every staff member. We'll talk much more about that next week because I want to share some fascinating discoveries about Generation Z next week when we have the big faculty, staff, dedication service before the students arrive, our last time in the H-Pack. But I was doing some reading this summer. I'm reading uh, James Emery White's book, Meet Generation Z, and he tells about George Barna, the evangelical researcher and demographer who has studied Generation Z, and you got to see this because it is huge corroboration for our Bring a Friend to Church event that comes on August 31. I want you to see. Let's put it on the screen. James Emery White in his book, Meet Generation Z. According, he said, he reports to us, according to the research of the Barna Group, the unchurched continue to be most open, watch this, most open to, and here's a direct quote from the survey, a friend of yours inviting you to attend a local church. Who's most open to that? Unchurched people are most open to your invitation. With one-fifth of the unchurched expressing strong interest in that little statement, and nearly a half willing to consider a church based on this factor. Can you believe that? Bring a friend to church. That is the most successful method you can use to reach unchurched. But he goes on. Now he's quoting Barna. He's quoting uh, George Barna. It's the top-rated way churches can establish connections with the unchurched. Oh, and by the way, Barna's still talking. With Generation Z, this approach can be especially effective with 28% of Generation Zers placing emphasis on their personal relationships compared to millennials at only 20%. So this group is even more than millennials saying relationships are big to us. And what is this little series that we're going to have and we're bringing our friends to church? for? What's the title of it again? What is it? Roommates, bad dates, and soulmates. And what's the theme? It's all about what every human heart on the planet, from Hong Kong to Singapore to Africa to America, every human being on the planet has a longing to accentuate, to grow, to better their relationships. And that's what we're going to do. The most effective way, George Barna is telling us, to reach out to secular people and say, hey, come to church with me. Hey, we got a new church. Man, we've we've done it. We're so excited. Can you come? Can you come? And by the way, you can do this anywhere on the planet. You don't have to have a redone church. You just say, come to church with me. 
roommates, bad dates, and soulmates. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter whether you're married or single. That doesn't matter at all. This series is for everyone. Now, I know what you're saying. Are you sure? I mean, are you really sure? Hey, did you read the blog? My blog for today? Now, this new bulletin, you can't read it in the bulletin. But if you go to the website, let's put that website up, please. Newperceptions.tv slash blog. And you can read this blog anywhere in the world if you wish. But the blog for today, I read, an, I read a piece by Kim Johnson, the writer, in spectrumagazine.com, or .org, rather. And he's talking about a fascinating subject. He's making, a, he's making a defense for Christ-like love, for friendship-making as the most effective strategy for, of all for reaching people for Jesus. I want you to read that blog. Just go there. It'll, it'll pop up, and then you can, you can read it for yourself. Three weeks from today, we're having our, our bring a friend to our brand newly renovated church day, August 31. I invite you to take advantage of it. You say, hey, but Dwight, I, I don't know what I, I don't know what I'm going to say. Okay, at the very end of my blog, I have this little sample. Here's, you can do this. Trust me, you can do this with your eyes, with eyes blindfolded. Put it on the screen, please. Here's a sample invitation. You're saying, hey, yo, we're pretty excited about the summer-long renovation of our Pioneer Church. And they're going to say, yeah, what'd you do? Well, man, number one, we had to replace the roof. That was a huge project. You ought to see it inside, though. So you can, you can shoot off this any point you wish. But we're pretty excited about the summer-long renovation of our Pioneer Church. We're celebrating the new season with a new series of presentations our pastor's having. Oh, yeah? What are they about? Well, they're all about growing the most important relationships, relationships in our life. it's called lives. It's called roommates, bad dates, and soulmates. Are you serious? Yeah, here's a card. And this is the key. Here's a card. So when you came in today, you should have received a bunch of these cards. You didn't get a card. Then you got left out. Make sure that when you leave, you get this card. Because you're going to hand this card. You just say, hey, here's a card. It tells all about it. They take the card. They read it. And they say, and then you say, oh, by, by the way, I'd be glad to pick you up Saturday morning, August 31. That's it. Is that rocket science? No. If it's a person who you're acquainted with, they live next door. <laughs> it's a piece of cake. Karen and I are already putting, we got separate lists. We're putting together because they're people we know. We're on a friendly basis with them. We say, hey, listen, come on, come on. Here's a little card. Take a look at this. We'll come pick you up August 31. You can do it. We can all do it. That's what exiles do. They live out their faith in their Lord and God. That's what Joseph did. And by the way, let's fast forward now to the end of the story. It's a sad ending because there are two deathbed scenes. And we're going to go to them both. Let's go to first to father's deathbed. Uh, 17 years was all Jacob had of Joseph. But God is good. And when Jacob comes to Egypt, he, God says, I'm going to give you 17 more years with that boy years. Isn't God good? But all good things must come to an end. And I want to go to the deathbed of, of Jacob. So, okay, so turn your page. We're in 45. Go to chapter, what is it, 49. This is fascinating. Watch this. Genesis 49, verse 29, then Jacob gave them, these are all his boys now, standing in his bedroom, gave them these instructions, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite. It's back in the promised land. The cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. Therefore, Jacob's still talking. Boys, I want you to remember, Abraham and his wife were buried there. Yep. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. It's our land. And when Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up off the floor and into the bed, and he breathed his last and was gathered to his, 
his people. It's a tender moment. It's a deathbed last will and testament. Bury me. Bury me back in the promised land. But you know what's so, so challenging? I mean, you think about it. The only, the only piece of real estate the exiles own in the promised land is a graveyard. That's all they have. They're exiles in Egypt. We have nowhere back there, but there is a graveyard. And would you please bury me there? Oh, my. Wow. That's the death scene of Father Jacob. Now let's go to the death scene of Joseph. Wrapping it up right here. Death scene of Joseph. Go to, go to chapter 50, the last, the last words of the book of Genesis. Here we go in verse 22. And Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years, and he saw the third generation of his boy Ephraim's children. And he saw the children of Maker, the son of his other boy Manasseh. They were placed at birth on Joseph's knees because when you put, when you put a baby on the knees of a great-grandfather, you're saying... Great-grandpa, your DNA, you claim these. These are your children. When you put that child on the knees of the great-grandpa. Then, verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my what? You must carry my what? You must carry my bones. You got to carry them back to the promised land. And so Joseph died, final verse 26, at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. No, no carefully. He is not placed in a grave. He's placed in a coffin, and it's a movable coffin, as all coffins are. Why, Joseph? Because I want you to bury me in the only piece of real estate we own in the promised land, the family graveyard. You bury my bones there. Do you understand? We swear it. We will do it. Something's going on here, folks. This isn't just a little, this isn't just a little deathbed scene. The writer of Genesis, whom I happen to believe is Moses, is making a huge point for his readers. For his readers. This isn't just about a graveyard in, in the promised land. It's about the promised land one day without a graveyard. A promised land with zero, nada, no graveyard. That's what it's about. Jacques de Caen, my friend, in his magnum opus, his, his commentary in the book of, of, of uh, Genesis. I learned this from him. I never heard this before. Let me run it by you. Isn't it something? Jacob, okay? So we have Father Jacob right here. Jacob ends in a grave with no coffin, right? Joseph, his boy, ends in a coffin with no grave. Hmm. What's going on here? There's something trying to be said. There's something we're supposed to be hearing. Because as it turns out, the book of Genesis ends the very same way the Pentateuch ends. The book of Deuteronomy. Both heroes die. Joseph dies in Genesis. Moses dies in Deuteronomy. Both heroes die, but for both of them, it is death without a grave. Hmm. Why? Because there is embedded in these endings the promise of another promised land. That's why. There is embedded in these endings the promise of a promised land one day in which there will never, ever, 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 ever be a graveyard. What do you say? Amen. Not a graveyard in the promised land that God's promising. 
Look at, look, at, look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22. This is the Bible, Hall of Fame, Hall of Faith chapter. It's amazing to me. They could have picked any one of the great moments in Joseph's life. They don't pick any of them. They skip over them all. Here's Joseph's little corner in the Hall of Fame. Put it on the screen, please. Hebrews eleven twenty-two. By faith. There he is. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. Come on, why are we talking about bones? What's so by faith about that? Ah, what's so by faith about picking a place where you want your bones to be buried? If you're never coming up again, why would you care where your bones are are buried? Unless you believe by faith, you'll be coming up again. You'll be coming up again. And when you come up, it will be a promised land with no graveyard in it. Hallelujah. That's what's going on. Moses before he dies, is embedding this in the psyche of every reader. There's another promised land. What does it say in Hebrews 11? They look for a city whose builder and maker was God. It's not the one you're living in. They're looking for another promised land. Well, how can that be? Well, I'll tell you how. Because if you could... Listen. If you could find the cave of Machpelah today, any archaeologists here, if you could find the cave of Machpelah today, that graveyard of saints still bears the dusty DNA of Abraham and Sarah, of Isaac and Rebekah, of Jacob and Leah, and Joseph. Dusty DNA is there, but there is another grave outside the ancient Jerusalem where also a Jew without a coffin was buried. But were you to go to that grave today, you would not find a scintilla of dusty DNA belonging to Jesus of Nazareth. Do you know why? Because he is not here. He is risen. He is risen. That's the point. And because he lives... This crucified, buried, risen, ascended, and soon coming Savior, because he lives, we shall live also. Hallelujah. Yeah, that's the hope. That's the hope. Going home. Going home. I'm a going home. Antonin Dvorak composed the great New World Symphony, whose Largo has become globally renowned. You know the Largo. Going home going home. I'm just going home. Going home, going home. I'm just going home. The whole world loves the Largo. But you understand, of course, Dvorak never wrote words. You don't write words to a symphony. But a student of his, listen to this, a student of his named William Arms Fisher decided to write lyrics that would match the tune of that beloved melody in the Largo. Going home, going home. I'm a going home. Quiet like some still day. I'm just going home. In a few days, the Pioneer Memorial Church on the campus of Andrews University will go home to the home that we belong in. And someday, sooner than any of us here realizes, we will all be going home. Going home. Going home. I'm a going home. Going home. Going home to that one promised land where there is no graveyard. Hallelujah. That's the home I'm going to. How about you? Hmm?
You going home? Some of you right now, when I say you're going home, you know what? Your, little, your mind just jumps to start thinking quickly. Am I going home? And you're thinking of something that's between you and Jesus right now. No, you've been in Pathfinders for years. You've been a Pathfinder leader. But something is in your life that you realize, oh my, if Jesus came tonight, I'd have to deal with some heavy baggage. You know what, my friend? It's as simple as you saying Jesus. You see that baggage? I can't take that to heaven. I can't take it home with me. I'm leaving it. I'm leaving it in your nail-scarred hands. If it's physical and material, if you want me to have it back, you give it back to me. If it's dark and immoral, never let me see that again. Take it away, Jesus. You can go home. My friend, you can go home. It's as simple as that. He just needs you to say, be my Savior. Be my forever Savior and friend, please. I can't get home without you. Do you understand? He's dying for you to come home. He's already died to get you home, and he's dying for you to come home. We've got to go home together. There's nothing in your life that Jesus can't handle.